we're looking at Luke chapter 12, verses 35 to 48. We'll be considering parables that speak about Jesus' coming, his advent, his second advent. Now, as we read this, when I read a passage, I'm always looking for repetition. So I'm going to ask you a question after you read this. What word, it just keeps getting repeated over and over again. So see if you can find it as I read it. Luke 12, beginning at verse 35. Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. So that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watcher and the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions." But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect and an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him much will be required. And from whom they have entrusted much, they will demand the more. It's a sobering passage. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that your, work, your word would do its work in our hearts. That you would rejoice the heart that it would make wise the simple, that it would enlighten the eyes, that it would revive souls, that it would bring conviction of sin, that it would lead us to Christ and show us our need for him. We ask that, Lord, you'd speak to each one, and I pray for the ability, Lord, to preach the truths of this passage. I ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what word did you come up with? Well, we got a little slide there, and you see the one word that jumps out ten times in the text? It's the word come, comes, coming, and it's the idea that it's all referring to the return of Christ. And, you know, we're going to close our service today singing one of my favorite Christmas carols, Joy to the World. And... My daughter was telling me this week that her class over at Chieftain, they were debating whether this was really a Christmas carol or not, or whether the song was really more about his second coming. 
I thought, well, that's an interesting, I never thought about it that, but really the answer is both, isn't it? When you think about joy to the, to the world, this Christmas carol we sing every year, think about what it says. Joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. First coming or second coming? It's the first coming, but it certainly applies to his second coming too. Let every heart prepare him room. Second verse, joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. First coming or second coming? Let men their songs employ. I mean, it's both. Third verse. No more let sins and sorrow grow, nor thrones infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is, is found. And we're still seeing a lot of curse. So first coming or second coming? Both. It begins now. It ends with glory. In the last verse, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. You may recall that the very first words out of Jesus' mouth in his earthly ministry was, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. You don't have a kingdom unless you have a king. So Jesus is saying the king is here. Repent. And Herod understood this really well. Because when the wise men came and they were, you know, told, hey, we've heard that the king of the Jews has been born. And, and Herod says, well, I want to worship him too. Because the reality is, with, if there's a king, there's a rival. You either crown him or kill him. And Herod made his choice. And so you may think this morning that you're in charge of your life. That you call the shots. You have authority. You might have a big title out in front of your, on your door or on your, on, your, on your table there. You know, it's got some nice big title and, you know, you get to call shots and tell people that they're coming or going. Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. He comes and says, repent. The king is here. The kingdom of God's at hand. I heard this story this week from an old friend of mine. He was telling me about... Uh, this farmer, this guy's name was Farmer Smith, and the DEA, Drug Enforcement Agency, came to his farm, and they thought that there were drugs on his property. They thought he was growing marijuana plants. And so they came, and they said, we think there's nefarious activity going on. We're going to need to inspect your property. And so Farmer Smith told him, okay, but you need to stay out of that field over there. And the DEA agent said, you don't understand who I am. And he pulled out his big badge and said, you know, I'm so-and-so from the DEA. What do you mean I can't go over in that field? And the first thing he did was he went right into that field, thinking it must be over there. So he goes down over the hill. And about two or three minutes later, him and a couple of the other agents come running over the hill, full speed, screaming their heads off. And the prize bull is chasing them. <laughs> and so Farmer Smith gets up on the fence, and he cups both hands, and he yells as loud as he can, show them your badge! I mean, you may think you're hot stuff. Your badge is not going to do a whole lot of good when that prize bull's coming at you. Well, when Jesus comes back, our supposed importance will go down the drain in an instant. And this is a very sobering passage. If you read this carefully, there's actually the most, one of the greatest promises that you'll ever see. And I'll save it for communion. That's 1237 magnificent promise one of the greatest promises in the whole bible and then one of the worst sobering statements 
about judgment are right here. You got both. The Bible says this in, in Revelation 6. It says, when the Lord returns, it says, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful. I mean, these are some big shots. And then it says, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? Who can stand? For you see, Jesus came meek in his first advent, but he comes majestic in his second advent. He comes riding on a donkey in his first advent. His second advent, he's coming riding on the clouds. Big difference. He came to take punishment for sin the first time, but those who reject that for the second time, he comes to punish sin himself. He comes as the lamb the first time, but in his second advent, the lamb comes as the lion. And Jesus' point here is that you need to be ready for his return. Are you ready? Let's break down this text. There are only two imperatives. There's three parables. There's three blessed statements and ten references to Jesus constantly saying he's coming again. The imperatives are in verse 35 and 40. The very first words, stay dressed for action. That's an imperative. That's a command statement. And the other one is be ready because he's coming at an hour that you don't know. Nobody knows. It's one you don't expect. Stay dressed for action. Be ready. Now, stay dressed for action doesn't have the echo effect that it should have. Unless you know that the actual term actually means gird up your loins. My kids laughed at me when I shared that this week. It sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? Gird up your loins. And the idea is take your tunic and tuck it in your belt. They didn't have jeans, they didn't have Levi's or Wrangler or whatever back then. You know, they just had these long flowing robes. And, and the passage where this was first given was a very important passage in the Bible. It's in Exodus 12. And Exodus 12 is the Passover. And God said, thus ye shall eat it. You're going, you're, you're going, <laughs> your loins girded. Your cloak tucked into your belt is the ESV. A little easier. And your sandals on your feet and your staffs in your hands and you shall eat it in haste. It's a Passover to the Lord. The point was this. The Passover was a judgment. It was God's judgment on Egypt as the angel of the Lord was passing over and it was death for the firstborn child of every home that didn't have the blood of the lamb on the doorframe. And when the judgment came, then the, then the Pharaoh finally said, get out, all of you, leave. And the people of Israel were to be ready on the day of judgment. And Jesus is saying the same here, thing here. Be ready on the day of judgment. Only the day of judgment is so much greater. Are you ready? So Jesus gives three parables here. Verse 35 to 38, we have servants waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. That's the first parable, verse 35 to 38. You've got these servants waiting. Then verses 39 to 40, we have a thief in the night. And in verses 42 to 48, we have the master's manager. So we have three parables. The first parable is about waiting, verses 35 to 38. We're given what the kingdom should look like. It's about waiting. The second one's about watching, the thief in the night. And the third one is about the master's manager who's working. We're to be waiting, watching, and working. 
And the imagery is that throughout the Bible is that Jesus speaks of himself as the bridegroom. And when John the Baptist, the greatest of the prophet, sees him, he says, the joy of, is my, is my, the, my joy is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less because the bridegroom is rejoicing. He was the, he was the best man and he was rejoicing that the bridegroom, Christ, had come. And the imagery is that Jesus' bride is the church. And the church is described as we're to be this pure bride awaiting our wedding day. And this wedding day is often referred to as the consummation, the consummation of all things. And the return of Christ is referred to often in Scripture as the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's anticipated, it's prophesied in different places, but for example, Isaiah 25 tells us that on, the, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for, for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of, of rich f- food full of measure, of aged wine well-refined. And he'll swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, and he'll swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he'll take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken." That's what's anticipated and prophesied. And we get a foretaste of this wedding feast every time we come to the Lord's table, which we will in a few minutes. And we're reminded of this great wedding feast to come that's fulfilled in Revelation 19, verse 6, which says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, John, these are the true words of God. And so we are told, stay dressed for action. It's not pajama time. If you go on a trip and you're leaving, you have to pack before you go. You have to be ready. If you're going out of the country and you pull out your passport the day before you leave and discover that your passport is out of date, you have a big problem. Have you ever not been ready for something? Isn't that a terrible feeling? Like sometimes if I know I'm not ready for something, I will start to have one of those dreams where you never quite make it in time. You know, I've had that occur more than once where I wasn't ready to deliver a sermon so then I've dreamed that you know something happened the car breaks down I'm trying to go back the printer doesn't work and you know you never get back to church and the church is there waiting where's Pastor Bale you know he's not prepared for his message I had one of these happen to me uh, several years ago where I was doing a wedding in Virginia and this wedding was done at Mount Vernon beautiful place and Virginia, they don't mess around. And I didn't do my homework, and the, and the bride and groom didn't do their homework in preparing me, which I'm not blaming them. I mean, it's, it's my fault. They gave me the forms on the, on the Friday night, on the Saturday morning. I started filling out the forms for their, to marry them, and it is very specific that you have to apply to get a license if you are from out of state. 
And here I am marrying them that afternoon, and it is saying, you cannot perform the ceremony if you, don't, if you have not submitted this paperwork. And I'm toast. And so what do I do? I call one of my pastor friends quickly that's a pastor down in Virginia, and on the way down there, I drove to his house. I said, Scott, this is Scott Seaton in our presbytery. You've got to help me. I've got to marry this couple. What am I going to do? And he says, I'll tell you what. I will marry them. So this is how we did it. We got my phone and his phone, and we put them on speakerphone, and Scott married them virtually. They gave their vows. She actually got choked up and was tearing up because they actually got married by iPhone <laughs> virtually. He married them in his kitchen, signed the paperwork. I went and I performed the ceremony, but they were already married by phone. And, and I was wonderfully delivered from a really bad situation. <laughs> now, that can work here. But last week, Pastor Ben talked about the rich man and Lazarus, and there's a great chasm. And one cannot cross from here to there. The idea is that if you die, there's only two destinations. There is heaven, and there is hell. There is no middle destination, and there is never any switching from one to the other. So are you ready? You can't get anybody to virtually fix it. It's impossible. That's what the Bible is as clear as clear could be. You are right now on a road for heaven, or you are on a road for hell. And the scariest thing is if you think that you're on the road to heaven, and you're actually on the road to hell. That's the worst possible position to be in. And so this is a wake-up call. Just as Jesus' coming was a wake-up, and people missed it. You don't want to miss his second coming. Jesus is returning as the bridegroom to bring, to consummate this marriage. He is this, and the, and the imagery is, is meant to, to play on this marriage imagery, but the idea is that he's, he is going to so satisfy our hearts, and we will be so united to him, that it, the best analogy that we can come up with is marriage. Jesus is coming back for his church, and he, ex he expects that those who love his church as, as he loves his church, they will be found waiting, laboring in his church, busy doing the work of the church. What if you weren't ready for your own wedding day? What if you overslept? What if you didn't have a tux, didn't have a suit, didn't have shoes? What would that communicate to your spouse? Didn't have your wedding dress. What would that communicate? It would communicate that you really don't love this person, that you really don't care. And Jesus is coming as the lover of your soul. He's the bridegroom coming for his bride, and we're to be ready with lamps lit and dressed for action. And then the Bible says here that those who are ready are rewarded. And those who are not ready experience retribution or punishment. And the Bible actually says a lot about greater and lesser punishments. And this passage is saying about people being cut in pieces. The idea is that the, it's the imagery of hell, of, of a punishment. And those who knew the truth and didn't, and didn't respond to it, they will receive a worse beating than those who didn't know about it but still didn't do what they should have. They'll receive a light beating. 
But to everyone who much is given, much will be required. So there'll be more required of you, every one of you here, because you've heard today. That if you turn and reject this and walk away and willingly suppress it and say, I don't care, it doesn't apply to me, your judgment will be greater because you've heard. We're all judged on the light that we know. And, and we may have a hard time in our ears like, wait a minute, is that what the Bible says? Does not Jesus say the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin? Those who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers, these will receive a greater condemnation. It will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you, the mighty works that were done in you. He keeps saying more tolerable, more tolerable, greater judgment. And we say, oh, all sin's the same. No, it's not. That's not what the Bible says. The duration is the same. The destination is the same. But the degree of punishment is different for those who've rejected more. So for covenant children and you that have been baptized in the water as an infant, listen up. This judgment is great if you turn away. That's what Jesus is saying. So this is a very sobering passage. Do you care? Jesus is coming. That is the great theme that runs throughout the Bible. As soon as Jesus ascended into heaven, what happened? They all looked up at him, standing around. And the angel says, he's coming back just the way, same way he went up. He's coming back. Jesus spends a whole chapter before he goes to the cross called the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24. And the great theme is about when he's coming back. The whole book of Revelation highlights the return of Christ. And three times in the very last chapter of the Bible, you know, we have, often we have to hear things three times before it sinks into our thick heads. Jesus keeps saying, I am coming soon. I am coming soon. I am coming soon. And the church's reply is, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That's really the test of whether you know you're ready for him to return. The simple test is this. Can you pray, come Lord Jesus, this morning? Or you say, come Lord Jesus, in a little while, in a long while. Come when I'm ready. Or can you say, come Lord Jesus, right now? Are you ready? That's the test. Spurgeon says this about the return of Christ. The great scheme of redemption requires Christ's return. It is part of that scheme that as he once came with a, with a sin offering, he shall come a second time to claim the inheritance which he has so dearly bought. He came once that his heel might be bruised. He comes again to break the serpent's head and with a rod of iron to dash his enemies in pieces as potter's vessels. He came once to wear the crown of thorns. He must come again to wear the diadem of universal dominion. He comes to the marriage supper. He comes to gather his saints together. He comes to glorify them with himself on the same earth where once he and they were despised and rejected of men. Understand this, that the whole drama of redemption cannot be perfected without this last act of the coming of the king. The complete history of paradise regained requires that the new Jerusalem should come down from heaven come down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And it also requires that the heavenly bridegroom should come riding forth on his right horse, white horse, conquering and to conquer the King of kings and the Lord of lords amidst the everlasting hallelujahs of saints and angels. It must be so. The man of Nazareth will come again and none shall spit in his face, 
but every knee shall bow before him. The crucified shall come again, and the nail prints will be visible. No nails, though, shall fasten his dear hands to the tree this time, but instead thereof he shall grasp the scepter of universal sovereignty, and he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. And then he says this, because he's coming, he says, you who are Christians are not to live this fleshly, selfish life that, that asks, what shall I eat and drink? Or how shall I store up my goods? Or how should I get food and raiment here? You are something more than dumb, driven cattle that must think of hay and water. You have immortal spirits. Rise to the dignity of your immortality. You should just write that sentence down. Isn't that shocking? Rise to the dignity of your immortality. You have immortal spirits. Begin to think of the kingdom and the kingdom so soon to come, the kingdom which your Father has given you and which therefore you must certainly inherit. Think of the kingdom which Christ prepared for you and which he's making you kings and priests unto God that you may reign forever with him. Oh, be not earthbound. Do not cast your anchor in these troubled waters. Build not your nest on any of these trees, for they're all marked for the axe and are coming down. And your nest will come down too if you build it there. Set your affection on things above. You see, William Barclay in his commentary on this passage, he just says, an eastern lamp was a cotton wick floating in a sauce boat of oil. There it is. Keep your lamps burning. The wick had to be trimmed the lamp replenished or the light would go out. It's in this little sauce boat. Well, what happens if there's no more sauce, no more oil? No oil for your lamp and the light is gone. And it's going to be a long night. We don't know when the bridegroom's going to come back. But the way to keep your lamp burning is to keep adding oil, putting yourself around God's people, being in the Word of God, in prayer persevering to the end, not getting choked out by the things of this world and loving this world. Do you love being in church? Or do you find it boring? You know, Spurgeon in that same sermon, he said this, you who find our places of, of worship dreary prisons and Sundays dull days, how can you bear everlasting worship? How can you bear to have eternal Sabbath and continual songs of praises morning, noon, and night? Why, you would say, let me out, Gabriel, let me out. This is not the place for me. Let me be gone. I'm not happy here. If you're not happy here in church, you're not going to be happy in heaven. Verily, verily, I say to you, you must be born again. Well, cries one, I will change my nature. Well, dear friends, you can't do it. You may alter your habits, but your nature you can't. There's only one that can change your nature, and that's the Holy Spirit. Christ blots out sin, and the Holy Spirit renews the heart. You may re reform, but that's not what it's going to take you into heaven. It's not being reformed, it's being reborn, being made new creatures in Christ. Some of you here this morning are not ready, and you know it. What are you going to do? You know, I once got stuck at an airport in New Jersey as a kid. Or actually, I was out of college. My dad worked for U.S. Air as an airline mechanic. And before 2011, 
It was great. I could fly anywhere I wanted as long as U.S. Air had a flight going there and I could get a ticket and I would actually fly with my dad's seniority. I would bump stewardesses and other people just because my dad had more time on the airlines and the kids got those same benefits. These were amazing covenant privileges for, for, for a guy. So I went to New York City for the weekend and I had my ticket and I came back and I was in New York, New Jersey and I gave him my ticket and they, they asked me, Charlie, do you have, they asked you your driver's license. I didn't have my driver's license with me. This is before cell phones. No identification. Charlie, we can't let you on this flight until you have proper identification. I am stuck in New Jersey. So I have to call my dad on a payphone. And I call my dad, and he is livid. I mean, he is just so mad. Probably half the people there in the airport could hear him yelling at me. You know, like, you're telling me that you went to New York City for the weekend and you don't have any identification. If you were to be killed, you would not be, they wouldn't even be able to identify, you know, on and on. I mean, I was in big trouble. (laughs) So he was very mad. But he was working second shift that day. He drove in to work, gave my license to a stewardess, She got on the plane going to Newark, New Jersey. She already knew what I looked like. She got off the plane. She knew who I was. She came up the jetway. She walked over to me and handed me my driver's license. And I was able to catch an afternoon flight and off to Maryland I went. Now, you that don't have proper ID this morning, to get into heaven, the Bible says you got to have the wedding garment. There's a verse in scripture, it says, the one who didn't have his wedding garment, the master looked at him and said, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? He was speechless. And the king said to his servant, bind him hand and foot and cast him out in outer darkness. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You have to have a wedding garment. If you're going to stand before God, and he's the return, or you're going to die, either way, you're going to face him. That is your destination, to stand before the living God. And you have to have proper paperwork to get in. And and this identification is Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's the wedding garment. It's him. He came in the first advent, advent and is coming to lay down his life for your sins. And he gave himself as an offering for sin on a cross so that he would take your sin and that he would give you his garment of righteousness, his life, his perfection, his righteousness. We're to receive his free gift of righteousness. He saves his people from their sins. Has he saved you? Your trust must be in him. That's how you're ready, is put your trust and your weight, give your sin to God, ask him for his righteousness. Would you do that this morning? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, to think that you gave everything, gave up heaven, and took on hell and experienced the torments of hell on a cross, cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That we would be able to say, my God, my God, why have you accepted me? Thank you, Jesus, for what you did. Thank you that we are accepted. 
because you paid for us. Pray for each one here, Lord, that we would do business with you, that we would know where eternal life is found. Open our eyes. Feed us now as we come to your table. Remind us of what's to come. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.